Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Chris Page. Chris is the owner of Jelly London, an award-winning production company and artist management agency. He also owns and runs Three Blind Mice, a specialist in 2D and 3D pre-visualising services and animatics. Uh, Chris, welcome and thank you for joining us today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to come on. It's great to be here. Pleasure, Chris, and thank you for joining us on the show. Um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast on June the 15th, 2021. So even though there are some real green shoots starting to appear and that we're moving out of social restrictions in accordance with the government's roadmap out of lockdown, um, we are still somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 situation, and that's been the case for the best part of the last 14 months in one way or another. So. With all of that in mind, to what extent has this whole pandemic affected you and your businesses? Well, it was it was a, it was a kind of it was a period of adjustment um, that happened obviously extremely quickly when we saw it coming. I remember, which was March last year, saying to everybody, "Okay, I think everyone home. Let's see how we get on. You know, grab your computers because obviously we're an animation business, so a lot of the guys rely on technology." to uh, produce the work, um, you know, grab your computers, go home, let's stay at home, we'll set up a Slack channel and we'll keep in touch and hopefully we'll be back in a month. <laughs> so, uh, you know, ever the optimist, I thought that was what was going to happen. And then um, we fairly quickly settled into um, a new way of working. That's really good. And um, when it comes to sort of adapting to that sort of new working model, as it were, have you found that sort of leading people from a distance has meant that you've had to sort of change your own sort of approach to running the business? Yeah, I think because you know the, the studio space that we normally inhabit is is kind of large open plan space where there's a lot of creative discussion and a lot of chat about um, direction and approach. So obviously having that taken away uh, and with the furlough scheme removing, temporarily removing some of the staff didn't mean that there was quite a, a quite a kind of steep period of adjustment where we had to get used to Zooms, Slack. And obviously, you know, some people ad- adapted to that easier than others. But I think that the, the hardest thing was, was remembering that to keep in touch with people, even the people that had been furloughed, it's very difficult to go to kind of just to check in and make sure that they were still okay. I mean, we were, it was a business where partially we were extremely busy in some sectors and, and not so busy in others. So we were kind of, it was a two speed, um, you know, we were, we were operating at two different speeds. So we had to just make sure that both sides of those, both sides of that equation were kind of being looked after. 
That's really positive for sure. And um, I suppose it's quite difficult, isn't it? Sort of adapting to sort of looking after people from a well-being perspective from a distance. And when you're sort of sucked into that sort of hectic mode of doing that, keeping on top of that side of things, as well as running the business, I suppose it's quite easy to lose sight of your own well-being as well and recognise that even as business leaders, we do have to sort of take that step back and recharge the batteries when we need to as well, because we are ultimately all human, aren't we? Yeah, I think, yeah, your, your natural um, inclination is to make sure, you know, is everyone okay? Check in on everybody to make sure that they're all right. Um, take up any shortfall that you see so that you are grabbing the slack and kind of, you know, stepping in where needed. Uh, and there was certainly was a moment, I think, towards the end of last year, beginning of this calendar year, where I had to have a little moment and we, as a leadership team, had to kind of go, okay, we need to look after ourselves, take some time out, make sure that we're okay, because obviously you can't, you can't lead if you're, if you're physically and mentally drained. And I think that was the hardest part of it was, you know, looking after that other people when you've probably never been busier yourself so it was that kind of plate spinning that you had to be aware of and just make sure that you were checking in there making sure you're busy making sure the people who aren't busy are okay are you uh, am i okay uh you know checking on your management team and it's it's one of those things where the people that were furloughed were you had to make sure that they weren't too alarmed that their jobs were endangered and on the other side of the coin you had to make sure that the people who were snowed under with work because we were very busy um, were not too distressed so making sure that they took time out giving them days off for mental health if we felt that they needed a rest and just generally yeah checking in because you're not in a room you know you can't just wander over to someone's desk and say how are you doing or call them into your office and make sure they're all right it's you know it's a physical effort to either you know send a message or get on a zoom or you know and, and zoom fatigue you know you just do some people would rather jump on a call rather than you know put themselves on display you know there is a certain amount of stress engaged when you go on a zoom call that some people don't adapt to as well as others yeah, and certainly that remote working does have its advantages and disadvantages, doesn't it? Um, it's There's a lot of well-documented benefits when it comes to the work-life balance, I suppose, but it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. It is noticeable that we've sort of missed that human social interaction with our colleagues, and we've taken that for granted perhaps a bit pre-pandemic. And it also benefits in a creative sense as well, getting people together in one room, getting brains together in person to sort of bounce off each other and share ideas. So there's an argument's sake um, there for sort of both of them isn't there. And with that in mind, there is perhaps room for the office environment as we knew it pre-pandemic to perhaps return in vogue, isn't there, despite flexible working becoming more of the status quo? Yeah, I mean, I think we we definitely. I, I think there was a stage, where, you know, where two or three months in, when we were kind of we were working fairly successfully from home, where I did consider whether we needed a space for us to inhabit, whether we could just carry on working um, remotely. But then that soon passed, 
and you think, well, okay, we need a spiritual home, if you like. I think especially creative people need space, a, a space to be in where they can bounce off others. And I think, so we soon move past that and start to look at ways to get back into the studio. And and we, we kept it open. We, we made sure it was safe. Uh, and we made sure that people felt that they could go in if they needed to and if they wanted to, uh, if they felt they could travel there safely because they could go in for work reasons. Uh, and then if, you know, the, if they, it was better for their mental health for them to go in, they could go in and sit in the studio. I think what we've realized now is the studio ha- has a different role um, in our work. It, it's not necessarily place you go to to work um, because we've all proved that we can work from home the studio is now the place that you go to to swap ideas um, have management meetings catch up with each other assess each other's staff it's it's more of a, a social space and a socially aware space than a place where you go and do your day-to-day tasks because we know quite well that people want to do and can do their day-to-day tasks at home and in fact in some cases you know the commute makes it makes it it's more advantageous to work from home because you can do more work you can you know get up roll out of bed and start working if you want to rather than get on a train for an hour and a half and then come in so i think it's just mm-hmm. it's it's as important but it's my expectation of, you know, it was a place where people came in from 9.30 till 6, 5.30, whatever it was, every day to do their work. That's no longer the case. You know, you come in for a reason, to meet your workmates for whatever reason that may be. And that is more for mental health, spiritual health, and the well-being of the business. I think we've certainly learned an awful lot during this time about time efficiency and the fact that trust is greatly enhanced. We can trust people to work from home and be productive during this time. But in terms of also adapting to this new reality, would you say, Chris, there are any other sort of key learnings that you've taken away from this uh, last 14 months yourself? Yeah, well, I think it's just what I was was referring to before. My, My... I think before I was quite set in my ways that we all need to, you know, the office, the studio, the office is the place where we come to work. Uh, and, 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 you know, I had been discussing with some members of the staff before the pandemic hit about ways of um, them having a slightly more flexible approach to to coming into work. But it was, it was you know... I was not begrudging it, but I found it quite difficult to get my head around the fact that there would be some people who weren't here while other people other people would be in and working. Whereas I think now my mindset is completely changed. And I think, well, look, come in if you need to come in or there's a meeting. Otherwise, I know where you are. I know you're working. I have a lot more trust in those people to be able to create fantastic work because it's been proven over the last 14 months. I know that everybody can work really well from home. And I think that has definitely changed my mindset um, because I don't necessarily believe that you have to come in. You know, you should want to come in and there should be a reason for you to come in. You know, we're, a, we're also a, a business that 
markets themselves to other creative businesses. So, you know, it may be that you come in to meet clients or, you know, talk to other creatives, talk to our directors, talk to our illustrators. And some of those meetings are good to do face-to-face. You know, it's nice to sit down and have a coffee with people. But your, you know, the administrative chores, the the, the kind of the, the, the daily grind doesn't need to be done here. I can completely see where you're coming from there. And I think what is quite interesting, isn't it, is uh, what's going to happen in the uh, the future with working practices as we see things starting to uh, develop and things hopefully returning to some form of normality as we move out of social restrictions. And in your view, uh, Chris, what do you think that future holds over the next few months as we hopefully move out of lockdown? And where is it that you're really hoping for your businesses to be this time in a year? Well, I think... It's an, interesting, it's an interesting time, and, and it's quite weird to think that, you know, when we went into lockdown in those first few months, it felt very difficult and it felt very complex. But in a way, I think the management of our return to whatever normality looks like is probably more challenging because there is a lot of mental health issues that have been caused by two months at home. There's a lot of challenges in encouraging people or understanding people who do not want to come in or are worried about travel. So I think the next six to eight months are going to be really challenging because you have to, you know, we're doing numerous surveys with our staff, checking in with them, you know, who's happy to come in? How many days would you like to come in? What time would you like to come in? You know, how are you going to get here if you do come in? All of these things are complex and have to be, you have to kind of really pay attention to the individual and how comfortable they are in order to encourage the correct working behavior. Now, I don't want to force people to stay at home. I don't want to force people to come in. I want people to be able to feel happy and be as productive as humanly possible. So I need to find that blend to get that. And that is tricky, you know, because if you want to have a meeting where you need specific members of the department, you need them all to need, want to be able to and need to be able to come in at that time and on that day. Um, so you have to kind of be, everything is a lot more, as a, there's a democratic process, I think. It feels a slightly more democratic process. And I think that's that's a good thing for a business like ours um, to, because it means that we're actually paying more attention to the needs and wants of the staff, which, you know, although we have normally been or traditionally been fairly good at that, I think you're more certainly more aware of how people feel about coming in than you were before. And it's going to be, you know, it's it's not going to be simple. It's going to be, mm. it's going to be complicated because we, you know, I don't, I never expect everybody to be here all the time again. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I'll be very surprised if it is. There will be moments when everybody's here and in the studio, but I, I don't think, and I, I, I now know that it won't affect our ability to do business, and that is quite reassuring. Yes, exactly. There are some key real takeaways from this pandemic. And I think we are more focused on the mental health and well-being and work-life balance side of things than ever before, and rightly so. And I think it will be absolutely fascinating to see how things develop on that side of things, Chris. And as we start to get a clearer picture of what the post-COVID world is going to look like, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the show with us because it's been a real eye-opener having you join us today. And thank you once again for your time. 
yeah, happy to come back. It'd be great. It'd be wonderful, Chris. Um, and also, just before we do um, wrap things up, um, since we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation yet, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. And I'm confident that better days are um, ahead in the near future. Oh, no, it was, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I've really enjoyed talking about what we do and how we do it. And yeah, I'd love to, to um, well, who knows what's going to happen. It's going to be an interesting journey. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to share with you where we are in another six to eight months time. And let's hope um, there are some positive stories to share at that point in time. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Chris Page, owner of Jelly London and Three Blind Mice, onto the programme today. And uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Of course, Sir Jeff was a successful professional footballer and manager during his career, and he remains the only player in history to score a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final, which, of course, he famously did back in 1966 as England beat West Germany 4-2 at Wembley after extra time to lift to the Jules Rimet Trophy which to date remains the Three Lions only World Cup triumph Uh, that will be coming up next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst who joins us on the programme today Um, Sir Jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm. It's, uh, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I wanted to bury it. And I'd be absolutely... I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, 
I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um I've off, I, said, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it, and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could, after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's got to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same 
union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, it's very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. 
And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, Young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenway, that was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big, long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road. Um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true 
And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence, going back to that third goal in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to, a, we moved up market to a council house, somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school in the gauge. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell them I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season 
around, I think, September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games, and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 seasons, you know, three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very... Mild mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd he have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of. And you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially personally surprised I think it's, and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see myself. I was, I was a very disciplined 
person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, he was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on the goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was, uh, wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the 
that kind of uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend, and, and I always joke and say. You, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked, necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person. Didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.